All right, let's get our Bibles and go to Ruth chapter 3, Ruth in the Old Testament. For the past few weeks, we've been going through the book of Ruth, and we'll bring it to a completion, Lord willing, today. And I hope that you had a good Christmas. I, I really do. But, you know, the older I get, which is every year older, I don't know if you've experienced the same thing, but one of the things that, that, I, that I realize is that uh, happy times that we have scheduled in our national calendar or even a religious calendar, uh, for many people, those are more challenging times than they are happy times. Uh, everything from watching Christmas movies that has families together, even, you know, Home Alone. It's a great, great movie for child behavior and, and so forth. Like, even, even the McAllisters, I mean, they've got this huge home, and they're going, they're going to Europe. Like, who, what? Like, who does that? I mean, we, we watch these things, and we're like, man, they, they've got this, like, they've got this ride on life. Like, they've got that ticket on the plane. And even the dysfunctionality that we see in Christmas movies, some is funny and some not so funny. And then, you know, it's a wonderful life. And that always, you know, makes us emotional. We're like, thank you. I love you, you know, as a family. And we watch these things. But, but, but at the core, if you've lived long at all, there's going to be loss. There's going to be separation. For some people, it's, it's through death. People have gone on. For some, it's, it's divorce. For some, it's just families. Man, the family situation is really really, uh, let's say, challenging. And it comes to that time of the year that Mark Lowry said, for many people, Christmas and Thanksgiving, it's you're around people that you love, but you don't like. We had amens. We do counseling here, all right? And you have all of that collide together, man. Sometimes it's like we're told Christmas is, and it's supposed to be this type of experience. We're like, but the experience doesn't match like what it's supposed to be, at least what culture tells us, in my experience. So then for many people, December is a down, down month. And I want us to just look at Ruth 3 and 4 as we bring this beautiful narrative together and see that Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. We're going to look at some big words today, but um, you guys are smart enough to track with this stuff. And we said about a month ago that this cardinal sin of many Bible communicators and pastors and preachers, as they say, well, I don't want to talk about the difficult stuff. In fact, this is not difficult. But I say, man, if you talk to the people in your church, they do stuff that you could never do. I mean, talk to you guys about the type of jobs you do and the businesses. I mean, it's awesome. It's awesome stuff. So we're going to track, break down the key. What we're going to do today is break down this concept and understand what is a kinsman redeemer. Then we'll make that bridge to how this applies today. Because I don't know if you've ever been reading in the Old Testament and you're reading and you're like, man, this is interesting stuff, but how does this apply to me? Anybody ever been there before? Can we be honest? All right, and the rest of you guys are just scholars. You're like, everything applies to me. I am that awesome with the Bible. Like you read, you're like, I know it's scripture. I know it's the text. I know it's from God. I know it's true in all matters, you know, the scripture teaches too. But sometimes it's kind of hard. Like, okay, how do, I, how do I actually apply this to Monday morning? How do I apply this to children? How do I apply this to marriage and so forth and forgiveness? And Ruth, it starts out, I mean, with difficult stuff. It's a famine. A little Israelite family moves to Moab. That would have been both, right, dangerous and embarrassing for the Moabites to say, well, I thought you guys were God's chosen people, and yet you have to move over here with the Moabites just to be able to survive. The mom's name is Naomi. She loses her husband. 
and two of her sons, her only sons, and then she's left with her two foreign daughters-in-law. And then she says, you know what? Basically, I am given up. I am, I don't know what's wrong, but something's wrong. God has dealt heavily with me. I'm just gonna go back to Israel. Why don't you, ladies, you can, I love you, but you can just go back to your own people. One of her daughters-in-law does, but the other one had been touched by the hand of God himself. And Ruth said, her daughter-in-law said, I will go with you where you stay. I will stay. Your people will be my people. And the key phrase is church and your God will be my God. So they go back to Israel. They've got nothing. And then it just so happened there in chapter two, as we looked at last week, that Ruth came upon a field owned by a man named Boaz. And we looked last week at how in the Old Testament, God regards and God supports and God blesses leadership that cares for poor people. And the way it was is when the, the grain reapers would reap, they would leave the grain that fell on the ground on the ground. And at the corners of the field, they wouldn't reap those parts of the field because the people who were absolutely without any money, God said, I want to, I want to make a provision for those people to have something. But we also noted that the grain was not collected and given and delivered to their doorstep. They had to actually do something in order to get the grain. So there's hard work and there's also accountability and there's care for the poor together. And then in chapter 3, here's what happens. Ruth comes back and she actually met the man, Boaz. And Boaz said, oh, you're the one who cared for Naomi. You're the Moabite girl who cared for her mother-in-law so much to come all the way back to Israel. And he loaded her up with like 22 liters of grain. I mean, I don't know if she did a workout program, but ladies, imagine carrying 22 liters of grain all the way back, and she comes back, and, and Naomi, like at the end, of, the end of chapter two, she's just blown away, like, wow, that's incredible. And then, late, guys, there's some cool stuff for the guys, but right now, um, ladies, let's just check it out. Let's let the text speak for itself. You guys will track with this, I promise. Verse one, chapter three, then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were, meaning the young women workers? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. I don't know how, by the way, I don't know how some senior ladies know things, but they know things. Wash, this is awesome, wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet. This is a, a custom, um, this would be very strange to do today. Ladies, I do not, if you're trying to cast out a hint, I do not, like just don't bend down and mess with the guy's feet. That, that's just, just weird. All right, but when he lies down, observe the place where he lies and go and cover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. Verse five, Ruth says, amazingly, and she replied, all that you say I will do. You know what Naomi's thinking? She's switching from mother-in-law mode to mother mode. She says, I got to get my daughter a man. Like, that's what's going on here. She's like, this is good stuff. Like, like I don't know. How, like, this is not supposed to happen to me because it's good. But you got in good with the man who took pity on you because he noticed how you took pity on me. And, and, and here's what she's doing. She says in, there, um, in verse 
Uh, Two and three, what she's saying is that Boaz is our relative. Now, here's the concept. In that day and time, there weren't a lot of programs like we have today. Uh, The ladies were not able to be involved in society as far as running businesses to the way that they are today. So here's what would happen, ladies. If your husband passed away and you got into debt, there was a provision in the Hebrew law for the nearest male relative to basically pay you for your property and come alongside you if you had no children, and he would basically marry you, but your children would carry the name of your dead husband so that the dead husband would be able to have heirs and descendants. This was not a way to get cheap sex. This was not a way to build a massive harem because basically what it was, it was an investment on the part of the guy for something he would never get back because when the little boys and girls were raised, it was their property that he had basically purchased. So this was a way for ladies who had become widowed to not be destitute and starve or have to go into prostitution. It was a beautiful, beautiful provision that God had in the Old Testament law to say, you know what, I care about widows. And by the way, this isn't a a shady time, and it was also a time in the ancient world to where widows, orphans, really, if you couldn't put out, if you were not a young warrior, you know what, society really didn't care much for you, but you see God providing for widows. So what Naomi's doing, ladies, is she's trying to put things together, saying, I believe that Boaz is a relative, but he can be a kinsman redeemer. If you received an outline when you walked in this morning, we've got all this right there. So let's kind of walk through that. What is a kinsman redeemer? And then we'll talk about why it's so important. It comes from the Hebrew word goel, which means to redeem. So it was basically the nearest male blood relative. And he would purchase uh, property. He would redeem the property for someone who was a lady who was in slavery And also the Goel in the Old Testament could be an avenger of blood. He was the one who made sure that things were made right if there was a murder of the next of kin. So here's Naomi. She's thinking, she's like, Ruth, you may have a shot. Now, I I don't know how deep we want to go into this, but this is all about relationships. And ladies, I think that it's very proper for a guy, if he wants to pursue you, to pursue you. Don't become a cougar, young or old, but it's okay to give a hint. I'm not going to walk you through all that. You can talk to a godly lady on what's, what's the lines there, but you see right here, Naomi's saying, look, just let him know. And so basically, here's what Ruth does. She goes into the threshing floor. Boaz has worked hard all day. Ladies, he has worked hard all day. Guys, he has worked hard all day. Let's just stop here for a moment and say that if you're unemployed or partially employed, it's a great time to be able to serve people like you wouldn't be able to if you had a full-time job. Are we tracking? That is an incredible opportunity. And everybody, all of us want to be, you know, be employed and be able to support our families. But if it is in your, the chapter of your life right now that you're saying, man, I wish that I could get full-time work or I wish that I could get this, it very may well be that if God exists, he's in control. We tracking? 
And it very well could be that God is allowing you to be able to invest in your community like no other. Be able to invest in your church. Be able to go visit senior citizens who are homebound during the day hours to where you wouldn't be able to go if you get home at 7.30 at night because most of them are already in bed. I mean, think about all of the awesome situations how God could use you if you're partially or unemployed. I mean, it's an amazing opportunity what we see here in the text because Boaz, he wasn't in that situation, but he had worked all day long and he had eaten and he had drunk and his heart was, verse number seven, Mary, and he went down to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Basically what he was saying is I'm gonna watch over the stash so somebody doesn't come and take it. So basically what Ruth does is she goes in late at night and she lies down at his feet. This is awkward. Like any situation you look at, any culture, and in fact, this could have been seen a little bit suggestive. Like here's the line, here's the proper lady, here's the hoochie mama. It could have barely gone over that line because she's going in, right? And there's, by by the way, there there are other men there with, with Boaz around the entrances guarding the grain. And she goes, now guys, check this. You're Boaz, man. You have just put out hardcore manual labor. You've got the mental stress of being in charge of the operation, making sure things run right. You go to sleep because you're exhausted after a great meal. And then you wake up and there is a woman at your feet, Before I got married, um, some of you guys, I will not name names, gave me a little bachelor party. Awkward laughter. And one of the things that one of the men gave me was a little bell (laughs) that was supposed to be rung. After, After about two months of marriage, I gave it back. I was like, man, I can't even get any rest. I've been making sandwiches and cleaning the house and all sorts of stuff. I'm just kidding. The bell was, it was a real gift. If, if you give a donation to, to missions, I'll tell you who it was. Um, but, I mean, he's there, and she, like, she's literally at his feet, and he, he says, who are you? Like, like, this is actually real, guys. Like, this is real stuff. You wake up, and there's a woman at your feet. I mean, it could be a bad dream or a good dream. Like, what's going on? Like, this, this is strange. And she says, notice she says, and by the way, if this narrative causes you to be uncomfortable, it's because the Bible never behaves itself. It doesn't. Like, if you come to the Bible wanting it to make you feel comfortable about everything, it does not. I mean, everything from our sin to, like, what do I do with this narrative? Notice how it continues. She says there in verse number nine, she says, I am Ruth, your servant, and here is the kicker. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Ladies, you're out on the second date, and you say, spread your wings over me. Like he's thinking, you know what? I just realized there's something at the house I have to do. I don't remember what it is, but there's something, right? And he like, he drops you off and you know, he, his, you know, right. And here's the concept. By the way, this is why background study on the Bible helps us so much in understanding the Bible. When she said, spread your wings over me, that was a picture of what God said he would do to Israel. Basically, it's a picture of protection and also provision. What she's saying is, I am giving myself to you, 
And I am letting you know that you are a kinsman redeemer, and if you wish so, I would love to be redeemed by you. Now notice how Boaz responds. He says in verse 10, he says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. You see, Boaz was not stupid. He was older than Ruth. We don't know how much older, but he says, you know what? You didn't go down to the gym trying to get the guys with rock hard abs and great hair. Like you didn't go hang around the nice clubs. Like you didn't go try to get a sugar daddy. He said, you came, you came to me in verse 11, and now my daughter, do not fear. By the way, that's what God told Israel time and time again and what he tells us time and time again. Do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. What he's saying here is that your integrity and your character has become known throughout the community. And by the way, ladies, the greatest way for you to give an awesome representation of the Lord Jesus Christ is not people knowing how pretty or smart that you are, but it's them knowing your godly character. It's your godly character. That's what he's saying. Because he's saying, you know, it's already spread out through the entire community. So basically, at this point, I think it would be good to stop and, um, and say, for, for a lot of dads today, and this is a joke, if you haven't, if you haven't heard it, you, you, you probably have not been alive until now, but we'll, where dads have a daughter, and they say something to the effect of, well, when she gets to the age where she'll be able to date guys, like 37, you know, 37 years old or something like that. Like, this is my little girl. He said, you know what I'm going to do? When that guy comes into the house, I'm going to be there cleaning my guns. I'm going to have a big piece of red meat that's going to be chopped up with a machete, and I'm going to have part of it hanging out of my mouth. And then say, we need to have a talk before you actually date my daughter. You know, and, and, and it, it, that, like that's the picture, right? Because fathers love their daughters. But guys, I want to go a little, little further than that. Wouldn't it be far better, not just that you protect your daughter, but that you raise a daughter to love Jesus Christ so that she will have the wisdom and discernment to sort out the godly men from the creepos? Because there very well may be a time, Dad, to where you will not be there with your guns, with your machete, and your raw meat and blood all over your face. Like it very well may be at that point, you're not there. So let's, let's and by the way, isn't it a cool thing when the kids go to children's church? And not many churches do that. It's like this horde, this invasion of children, or de-invasion, I guess, this mass immigration of children. And it's just such a beautiful thing, I mean, to see their faces and how they're so excited to get back there. And here, listen, when we look at these children, let's think of future world changers for the gospel. I mean, future fathers and, and, and mothers and, and maybe uh, Christian workers, uh, accountants, I mean, the whole nine yards, people are going to make much of Jesus Christ. What a great thing to pour into them. Awesome, awesome thing. And we see that Ruth had knowledge of her virtue, and the community had knowledge of her virtue. So basically, Boaz, this is where it kind of gets a little bit interesting. In verse... Um, 12, excuse me, over in chapter 3, he told her to stay there till morning. So basically what he was saying is that I care about your reputation. 
I don't want you to leave and it looks like something shady went down. And he even went so far as to tell his men there, do not let anyone know that the young woman came here. Ladies, this shows that Boaz, a man of God, was concerned about Ruth's reputation. And do you remember at the end of chapter 2 when they kind of had their first connection and it says, and Ruth went home and lived with her Mother-in-law, she did not move in with Boaz. Let me be, be very, very honest that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you wait to move in together once you get, once you get married. Not before. Because the man needs to be ready to provide for the woman. If you have to move in together in order to make ends meet, he's not yet ready to follow through with that relationship. Always gets, it always gets so quiet. All right? Now, why would we address this? And by the way, we have an entire section on this on our website under our ministries and marriage and why we ask people to move apart for a time to be able um, to be married. What it says to the community, you can say, well, Jeff, and this is really hard to believe, but we stay sexually pure. If you're, if you're half of a red-blooded man and you're halfway attracted to, a, to women, and then there's a woman that you think is pretty cool and you're, you're there all by yourselves and there's no accountability, there's no going home to mom and dad or to the roommate. What it provides is a unbelievably high probability that you sin sexually and fall. Even if you're somehow able to remain pure, what it says to the community, and I want to be very loving with this, But what it's saying, ladies, to the community is that I say I love Jesus Christ. I say that he is first place in my life. But when I go home with my boyfriend and I'm there all night, every night, it's letting people know that I'm getting knocked up by a man who is not my husband. And what that says to people who don't know Jesus is there is this much difference, zero, between you and I. And furthermore, if you're an outspoken Christian, what it's saying is that I'm going to go to church, I'm going to talk about the Bible, but my life denies the purity that Jesus demands from his followers. There's probably people in here who've made that mistake. If you're with us and you're living with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, we're really glad that you're here. Amen, church? Like we really are. All of us are sinners. But there comes a point where we know the right thing to do. Guys, it's imperative upon you to take the lead and to make it right. It's on you. The imperative is to make it right. Because what it does is it shows value. It shows value to the woman to say, you know what? I value you enough not to tarnish your reputation. I value you enough that when we go, I mean, when we go all the way around the bases and we're going to take it that far and we're going to come together sexually in a sexual marriage union, I respect you enough to put a ring on your finger first. And I realize, I mean, I was born in 1980, I realize it's normal for my generation, for a lot of generations now, to just simply cohabitate together, to test drive that car, which by the way, we'll deal with that in several weeks in a message, before uh, tying the knot. Um, That's not wise, it is normal, but it goes against the word of God. So it really depends on what our presuppositions are. It really depends what our base beliefs are, what is reality, and who defines reality. And if you're living together, you're living a hollow existence of what marriage was designed by God to be.
There is redemption through Jesus Christ. It can be made right. But for the students and for the young people who have not yet been there, I think we need to talk about these things openly and straight up so that you don't have to experience the heartache that many people have. And let's continue with the narrative. Boaz says, you know what? I want to follow through with this. But he does what is right. He goes and he says, there's actually someone who's closer in relation to you guys than I am. So he goes and and Naomi says there towards the end of chapter 3 and verse 18, she says, the man will not rest but will settle the matter today. Meaning, man, Boaz is a man who does not wait on things to happen, but Boaz is a man who's willing to take the bull by the horns and do what needs to be done. So here's what happens. He goes outside the gate to the city, which is kind of like their law court, and he sees this nearer kinsman come by, and he tells the guy, come here, I need to talk to you about this issue. And he says, there is someone who needs to be redeemed. He explains the situation, and the guy said, yes, I will redeem the situation in verse number four. Then Boaz said in verse five, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, and also requ- you also require Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead. Isn't that an interesting way to sell it? Again, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you will acquire Ruth, first strike, Moabite, strike, the widow of the dead. Like you need to give that extra explanation. In order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, then, verse six, the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take the right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Basically what was going on here is Boaz was not being, he was not being deceptive, but he was being smart in business. The guy's like, yeah, man, I'm all about redeeming some land. He's like, by the way, you get the Moabite, the widow of the dead. And the guy's like, oh, I get it now. It's not just a land purchase. It's a family purchase that I won't be able to cash in on. I'm going to pass on that, Boaz, and I'm going to give that over to you. So Boaz, this is so cool, guys. This was probably an uncomfortable experience for everybody involved. But Boaz was man enough to say, I'm going to do the right thing in the right way. So they met in front of the elders there. It was kind of like their law court. It was like an English common law situation. For those of you legal nerds that enjoy reading William Blackstone's commentaries on the law. Nobody? Cool. Y'all are normal. And then he continues on to say, you know what? We've got this witness. Let me redeem the land. Guys, he was willing to do the right thing in front of people, even if it was embarrassing to him. I've talked to a lot of guys who say, Jeff, you know, I'm, I'm... Halfway interested about becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, but I cannot get baptized in front of people because I'm embarrassed about it. I mean, there's encouraging things that we can say, but there's a certain point where you just got to pony up. All right? There's a, cert- there's a certain point where we won't be able to follow Jesus with no awkwardness or embarrassment on our part. Like everything from baptism to standing up for Christ at work to having those difficult conversations with people who are straying from the Lord and we do it with humility and grace. Like we can't serve Jesus and never experience any embarrassment or awkwardness. Like it's not possible. Like Jesus went down willingly. He 
didn't have the loincloth on. He was completely without clothing, tortured to death on a cross. Embarrassing doesn't touch it. Humiliating doesn't touch it. What these disciples got from the world when they were trying to tell people about the mightiness of Jesus and the gospel, I mean, they were ridiculed. You ever been called down in front of a group of people, maybe it's at school, and somebody said something, and it was just like, man, it went through the heart, and everybody says, ooh. And you feel that hot flush come over your face. Imagine, I mean, read the book of Acts. It is craziness what they went through. But I think it is absolutely phenomenal that today in the U.S., we think so much of ourselves that we have all of these checks and balances having to do with, will this cause me to be embarrassed? Will this cause me to be awkward? Will people look at me a different way before I'm ready to follow Jesus Christ? When Jesus says, if you're ready to follow me, you come and you die. So Boaz redeems Ruth. He marries her. In verse 13, God gives them a little son. And then here's Naomi. Remember the lady who had been devastated by the circumstances of life? Verse 14. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more than seven sons has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Can you imagine that, ladies? She has been to the lowest depths. Her husband died. Her sons died. She came back to her hometown absolutely destitute. And in the closing chapters of her life, he gives her a little grandbaby. I've been, I heard it, it was said that for grandchildren, it's grand, they said, when they come, and it's grand when they leave, right? There's, there's expectation before, and there's peace afterwards. But you just think about this lady who thought that it would never turn around for her, and she's blessed. And here's something that we need to take away. For believers in Jesus Christ, for some of us, our lives here could end very, very poorly. Disease. I mean, accidents, car wrecks, financial catastrophe to where we pass in our last few months to where we literally have nothing of all the things that we've worked for. But here's the promise of the word of God, that Jesus is the redeemer and Jesus came to redeem us here, not so that we could have a bunch of stuff. That's not the gospel. It's not that Jesus came and redeemed us so that we could have, quote unquote, a great life, but Jesus redeemed us so that we could be forgiven of our sins and be cleared from the wrath of God. That's the gospel. And you know what's so amazing about that is that Boaz serves as a picture of this kinsman redeemer, the one who came and bought back that which needed buying back. You know what Jesus did for us? He bought us back. He bought out our sin debt. And you think about, man, sometimes you watch these shows, Shark Tank and so forth, and it takes a lot of money to do business, but think about how much it would take to buy back the sin of the world. And a kinsman redeemer had to be a near blood relative. You see, when Jesus came, the, the Christmas story, Jesus came as one of us to redeem us from the curse of the law. And a kinsman redeemer was not obligated to even pay the price to buy back the ones who were in poverty. And Jesus willingly laid down his life for us. The kinsman redeemer had to be willing to marry the widow and allow her to have children that would be 
in the name of her husband. And the New Testament picture is that Christ is the groom who comes to purchase the church as his bride. And Warren Wiersbe says, there can be no redemption without the paying of a price. And guys, we've got 2016 right around the corner. I believe the Lord has some amazing things in store for us if we continue to focus on Jesus Christ. Remember the true kicker of the story? It's the kinsman redeemer, but she gave birth to a little boy. Boaz is the last couple of verses in the chapter. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. You say, man, through all of that suffering, you saying that God was at work, Jeff, to bring a Moabite woman to marry this Hebrew man. And the short change benefit was that Naomi had her faith restored in God. But the long-term benefit is through that union. It was the grandfather of the greatest king that Israel would ever see. You say, well, I thought Solomon built a bunch of stuff. He did, but his disobedience from God brought about the destruction of the nation. You know what's so amazing about David is that every time in the Bible, this kind of blew me away a couple years ago, someone mentioned that every time we see David confronted about his sin, where God sends a prophet to stick out that old bony prophet's finger and say, thou art the man, like it's you. It's not anybody else, David, it's you. He repented every single time. And we see the old prophecies going back to the book of Genesis that God would send his Messiah through not just Israel, but through Judah. Who was of the house of Judah? David. And not only that, this little town Bethlehem, that was where Jesus was to be born. Man, I hope that there's a lot of things that we could take away from this book. But I think that understanding that God is at work in tragedy and suffering and drought should be one of the greatest takeaways to say, you know what, it's a dry time right now. But I'm not going to put the conclusion on the scenario yet because God is at work. And sometimes he's so merciful to give us little short-term benefits. To say, you know what, he provided me a little grandbaby in the closing years of my life. Long-term benefit, the redemption of the world. Very well could be that God uses our suffering to provide an example of the realness and the reality, the power of God in a world with people who don't know what to do with suffering. 